Today we're going to talk about, my title is Deep in My Communion, the, the, the intricacies, the, the power, the weight behind an understanding of, of what communion really is, right? Is it something we just do just because we have to? I hope and I pray that as we dive into God's word this morning that we wouldn't just have a head knowledge of what communion is, but it would translate into our hearts so much so that we begin to come to communion rather than saying we have to, instead we get to because of everything that Christ did for us on the cross, amen? But that's my hope and my prayer as we jump into in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So uh, I've got three kids. Rome is our oldest. Um, he is six, and then my middle daughter, Niema, in the back, and that's just uh, Arabic for grace. So uh, I'm Iraqi, 100%. My mom and dad migrated from Baghdad, Iraq, in the um, late 70s, early 80s, where they came to know Jesus. I grew up in an Arabic church my whole life. Um, and then, uh, man, went to school, and, and here we are now. And, and, you know, as a result of God's faithfulness and saving my family, we're here. Yeah, amen. Praise God for that. There's a lot of culture. I love the, the multi-ethnic focus here at Walk Church. There's a lot of culture in my home. I'm Iraqi. My wife is Filipino. And so when both grandmas, yeah, right, shout out. When both grandmas are in the city together, here in Vegas together, it's loud, it's crazy, and you know it's going to be good food, right? A little mix of both, right? You're going to get lamb from my uh, Iraqi roots, but then, of course, you're going to get some lumpia too, right? Yeah. Praise the Lord for that lumpia ministry, right? Yeah. Amen. Amen. It's been a while. Dave, can we get some lumpia? Okay. All right. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, so my, my two older kids, um, they started taking swim lessons uh, about a year, year and a half, and it's been really cool to kind of go and see them. In fact, Rome is, is probably a better swimmer than I am already. But uh, I, I'm that parent that, and, and maybe some of you guys, this kind of resonates with you a little bit. I'm that type of parent where, like, I freak out at the smallest thing. You know, I, I remember my kids were playing in the backyard a while ago, and uh, Rome just slipped, I think, and he just, like, scraped his knee. But I just heard, like, ow. And my friends told me about this because I don't remember. I think I blacked out or whatever, but they told me about this. They actually remind me about it all the time. They're like, it's funny because as soon as you heard that, you flipped the table over like Jesus did when he saw the money changers in the temple. You went crazy, ran outside to check on Rome, and all he had was a little scrape on his leg. And I'm like, well, maybe I just care about him more than all of you guys care about him, right? But I'm just that extra type of parent where I just, like, freak out about the smallest thing. I want to make sure that they're okay. So... I'm honest with you guys and telling you that when they began swim lessons, which was Justine's idea, I was very reluctant. I'm like, I don't know about this, you know. They get to the swim place, and whatever it's called, and um, they're getting ready. They're with their instructor, and I'm looking at Justine, and I'm like, I don't really know about it. I don't really like this dude. I don't know him. I don't really know. I want to get to know him. Like, what's going on? And they start taking him into the deep end. I'm like, why are they taking him into the deep end? <laughs> don't they got like a bathtub or something, like two feet water, three feet, and then kind of practice there? Why are they taking my kid in the deep end? And so he takes him in the deep end, and I began to think to myself, like, he's never swam before. He doesn't understand how to swim. Why would they put him in the deep end? And I came to find out that actually the deeper the water depth, the faster the pool. What are you trying to say? Well, I came to realize that in our family, we like to take trips to San Diego at least once a year just to get away, go to the beach, beautiful weather. We love it so much. Um, in fact, there's a special place we go to there that nobody knows about. It's called Solana Beach, but um, everybody knows about it, and it's quiet, it's amazing, and we go there once a year. And so I've swam in the water when it's wavy and when it's very turbulent, and it's really, really hard to get through the waves, right, because of how big they are and how it just crashes against you. I found out that if you try to take swim lessons in shallow water, what's going to happen is that you're going to see more waves because there's more turbulence hitting off the bottom of the ground, which causes what bad swimming. The deeper the water, the better the swim, the faster the swimmer. 
And what I'm trying to get you guys to understand is this. I believe that if we go deeper, look into the gospel of Jesus and remind ourselves, which I'm going to get to here in just a second, of everything that Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross, then we'll begin to value the sacraments of the church like communion, baptism, coming and gathering and making that a habit of our everyday routine on an everyday basis on Sunday. When we go deeper into the gospel, not past it, right? Not past the gospel. I think of one pastor by the name of Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of salvation. It's the A to Z. It's everything. He says that the gospel is not the swimming pool or the di- or it's not the diving board into the swimming pool. The gospel is the whole pool. It's everything. It's what encompasses our everyday lives. So if we want to truly understand who Jesus is and value the things that Jesus has given to us like communion, then we need to go deeper into that. We need to understand the complexity and the beauty of the cross and how Jesus saved us from our sin and cleanses us from all iniquity, from all sin, from all shame, from all doubt. My hope today is that we'll just do that, right? We'll do that. We'll go deeper into the gospel of Jesus. And as we do, we'll begin to value communion. We'll look at it more uh, intimately. Amen. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is writing to the church of Corinth. Specifically, I'm going to focus in on verses 23 and 26. And he gives them kind of this understanding of what communion really is. Shows them what it means for the follower of Christ to understand and to value the, the communion itself. And so look what he says in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. He goes on and he says, Do this in remembrance of me. He says, in the same way as he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I've got two thoughts for us as we jump into this text and really navigate what Paul is trying to articulate to the church. Number one, let me say this. I had to make sure that if I was coming to walk church, I was... I was, I, was, I was wearing what I needed to wear, right? So I got my blue shirt on. I got my uh, Nike Royals, right? Uh, I got the blue. And obviously for, 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 for Walk Church, it kind of meshes with the color scheme. But I'm going to say this too. I mainly wore it because uh, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm from Detroit, so I'm a big Detroit Pistons fan. Any Detroit Pistons? Of course, nobody. I always ask that question. <laughs> always ask that question, and it's always a no. And so let me remind you that in 2004, remember the Pistons beat the Lakers to win the NBA championship? Remember that? <laughs> Remember when they beat Michael Jordan in 89 to win a championship too? I just want to remind you guys about that. But now you guys are like, I'm probably not going to listen anymore. You're going to shut me out for the rest of the time. But our time is, is coming soon. We'll see. We're going to win a championship maybe in the next 30 years. Um, so here's my, here's my first thought. Number one, if you're in the habit of writing things down, write, write this down. Jesus took communion, listen, to prepare. Jesus took communion to prepare. I think there's intentionality behind Paul mentioning That the same night Jesus broke bread with these disciples is the same night that he was actually betrayed by Judas. The same exact night that he was really preparing himself and the disciples for what was about to happen next. His closest companion, his best friend who technically served with him. I mean, imagine that happening to you. And maybe some of you have walked through that type of journey where you've had a close, intimate friend in your life. And just out of nowhere, they betrayed you. These are the type of feelings that Jesus had imagined going up to the cross with that intentionality mindset. Knowing that one of his best friends who served with him sold him out for money. 
And it's interesting to see that, yes, Judas did betray Jesus. But if you study it a little bit more, you'll begin to see that it wasn't only Judas. Who else betrayed him? All the disciples. They all did. When the minute hit for him to be led up to the cross, taken captive by the guards, led away by the Jewish people, all of them scattered. They all left. They all ran. In fact, Peter, one of his closest friends, just like Judas, betrayed him in front of people when he could have been a representation of what Jesus has done for him in his life. Specifically, he chose to say, I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's all about, so much so that he cursed his name. You see, Jesus took communion to prepare, prepare for for what was about to happen. In the Greek, this is strong language. It shows us that, that while they were partaking in the Lord's Supper, in communion, Jesus was in fact in that moment being betrayed. Judas already knew. He already took the money. He was getting ready to sell him out even more, going back to the guys and telling them this is where he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be with the disciples. He's going to pray. This is the hour that you should come. This is what you should do. This is how it should play out. While he's taking communion, I think far too many of us sometimes approach communion with a mindset of, well, this is something I have to do rather than something I, I really get to do. And I want us to see that, listen, look at me. Jesus does not want your religiosity. He wants your authenticity. He wants you to be authentic and transparent enough to admit that you're weak and in need of grace and in need of help and in need of strength. And in that moment is when God intervenes through the Holy Spirit and says, I got you. I got you. That's what your strength really is. You see, he was preparing. Jesus was preparing to forgive. One commentary says the night he was betrayed was not only the night of his patience, listen, but of his loyalty without a murmur. Imagine that. Without a bitter word, in all faithfulness, he goes forward to his cross to be betrayed. Why and how? Because this is the heartbeat of our Savior. It's who he is. It's etched in his DNA. He can't not be a God of forgiveness. He can't not be a God of grace and a God of love. For him to not be a God of love is for him to not be himself. For him to not be a God who constantly forgives in the midst of our disobedience is for him to not be himself. So he, he's, he's preparing himself to show us that in the midst of our faithlessness and in the midst of Judas and the rest of his disciples' faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful. He remains faithful. So listen, I don't know what type of baggage you brought through these doors. You might be thinking, like, I'm not good enough to either, either enter into, in through these doors or listen to the word or worship or lift up my hands. Nate, you don't know what I did this past week. Yeah, I might not know, but God does. And guess what? He still chooses to love you regardless of what you've done wrong because he wants you to be defined by what he's done right. That's who our God is. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of love and he's a God of grace. And he's showing the disciples that this is what's going to happen. You see, we're, we're going to be spread apart. Like, there's no uh, way for us to really get out of this. And, and some of them are like, Jesus, there's got to be another way. And he's like, no, 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 there, this is the only way for me to atone for your sins. I must be led up to the cross in order for me to overcome the obstacles of life and, and to defeat sin and to defeat death and to overcome among the enemies. I have to give up my life for them. You see, as Christians, the way we fight back against the culture and the society and everything that's against us as followers of Christ, we don't fight back with rocks and sticks and stones, but with grace and truth because that is countercultural to the ways and the systems of this world. 
People want to pick up and fight. People want to argue if things don't go the way that they want it to be. They're going to stop talking to you. They're going to cancel you out. But as followers of Christ, what we do is continue to show love, to continue to show grace so that we can model the love that our Savior has for us so that the culture sees that and craves the same thing. That's what changes hearts. Listen, that's what changed my heart. That's what made me different. And you see, this isn't something new. Like Jesus modeling faithfulness, it's not something new that we finally get to see in his early in his life and in his ministry before being led up to the cross. It's who he was. There's multiple instances. In fact, let me bring a few to you in John chapter 4. You see Jesus getting ready to go to this city called Samaria. In, in Samaria, there was a lot of racial hostility among the Samaritans and the Jewish people. They didn't like each other. Jesus, as a Jewish person, goes to Samaria... You see, I love that. Let me, I just thought of this right now. Rather than running away from danger, Jesus runs to danger to give his life up. So he goes into Samaria and he finds this well, knowing who would be there in that exact moment. There's this woman. Scripture says that this woman was actually caught in adultery. She was living an adulterous life. And if you studied kind of the context of what happened back then, she was deemed worthy of execution based upon her lifestyle. In fact, she was at the well at a certain time knowing that nobody else would be out there because of how ashamed she was of her lifestyle. But someone approaches her. Someone pursues her. Somebody comes to her rather than running away from her because of her lifestyle. He, Jesus goes to this woman at the well. And what does he do? He tells her, about the water that he can give that lasts forever, about him actually being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the Hebrew scripture, him being the Messiah, him being the chosen one, him literally willing to give up his life so that this woman caught in the act living in adultery could be forgiven of her sin. And when she meets King Jesus, her life flips upside down. A woman who at one point was ashamed of her lifestyle leaves her water jug, Scripture says, and runs back into the city unashamed, proclaiming the good news of what Christ has done for her. This is, his, this is who Jesus is. Then you begin to scroll down a little bit more in chapter 4 of John, and you read about, this is a story that maybe some haven't read, but in John chapter 4, towards the end, I think 43 to 54, there's this royal official who's got a sick son. His son is sick, ill, severely ill, to the point of death, the Bible tells us. So he sees that Jesus is finally getting ready to go into the community that he's in, approaches Jesus and says, I need you to heal my son. Like any parent would ask, Right? I need you to heal my son. I, I, I don't know what to do. He's at the point of, of death. You see, this man wasn't really interested in Jesus, the son of God. He was interested more in Jesus, the miracle worker, the healer. And Jesus knew that. And let me give you a little background about this royal official. This royal official worked for the Roman government, for the specific king in that region. And at that time, there was a man by the name of Herod uh, Antipas who was working there. Herod Antipas was the leader who ran forward with the charge to have John the Baptist executed. John the Baptist was who? Jesus' cousin, the one that prepared the way, the one that paved the way, the one that said, you guys are interested in my word? Wait until this Savior comes into the scene. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoelaces. I'm not even worthy to tie his Jordans. Back, there, back then they had um, Jordan sandals, probably something like that, you know, a little bit of hy hybrid. Anyways, let me keep going. Um, he says, man, th th this, this Jesus that's coming into the scene, you, you guys have no idea what he's about to do. Herod led the execution of John the Baptist. Jesus knows who this man works for, knows that he's coming to him just for healing. He's coming for him just for help. He's not interested in who he is and what he's actually going to do. 
giving up his life on the cross. And in that minute of disbelief, Jesus says the word rather than having to go. That shows his power. Rather than having to go to his house to touch his son and heal him, Jesus instantaneously in that moment says, your son is healed. A servant meets this royal official and says the same moment that Jesus said your son is healed is the exact moment that he woke up and he was completely fine. In the midst of our faithlessness, Jesus continues to remain faithful. It's who he is and it's why he has come on this earth. And I want to tell you this. Listen, listen, I want to tell you this. No matter the scandal, Jesus loves you, the scandalous. He loves you. Regardless of what you did and what you've done, there's a place for you at the table. And Jesus made that way available for you. Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were yet sinners, we sang about that. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Why? Because we're not defined by our past pain, but by Jesus' past, present, and future work on the cross for us. He's in the business of restoring us and making us whole. I like to say it like this. Jesus has come on this earth to literally kick the powers of hell completely out of this earth and has promised to come back for us where we will rule and reign with him. He loves you. He is for you, not against you. And because of that, I am who you say I am. I like uh, one one pastor says this. He says, "I, I don't take communion to show God that I'll be faithful to him, right? I take communion to declare that God has been faithful to me. Isn't that good? It's powerful. That's why we take it. We don't reflect and say, oh, yeah, I want to show everybody how how faithful I am to God, like my piety. He don't want that. Remember, we talked about that earlier. We don't approach communion thinking, like, look look how good I am. Look look at what I can do for God. Look at how much I I love him and care. No, no. We show, uh, we take communion to show the world that God is so faithful to us, so gracious to us, so powerful in justifying us, in declaring us right in the eyes of God in the midst of what we've done wrong. That's what communion is all about. And so communion was preparing Jesus, yes, for Judas' betrayal, but also preparing him for the ultimate sacrifice that he was about to make on behalf of our sin. You see, this supper is really a continuation of of the story of God's freedom, uh, that that he freed the nation of Israel from the hand of oppression, from the Egyptians. It's a continuation of that. Jesus, uh, as we see in the Old Testament, kind of leads them to be reminded, like, look, remember how I protected the nation of Israel through the Passover by by telling them to sacrifice a lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost, and Jesus is saying, listen, listen, I want to show you and remind you that that's me, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment of that sacrifice. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm the one that will eventually give up my life so that you can be forgiven. I'm the fulfillment of everything that you read about in Hebrew prophecy. It's me, so look to me. Trust in me. Let me guide you through the obstacles of life that you feel like you can't find a way to overcome. Because he has overcome for us. So communion should prepare you to face the battles and the sin struggles of life with confidence and with hope because Jesus has already given you victory from sin through his sacrifice. But a lot of times, you know, I'm afraid to say, and I'm, if we could just be honest and authentic, it's a safe place to, to admit, right? Sometimes we come into our prayer life, sometimes we come, we come to church, and, and this is okay, but we come into our prayer life, we come to church with this mentality of defeat. Like, you know, we come before God, and God, I'm asking you, and let me stop and say this too, I'm, I'm so thankful that, that Walk Church emphasizes prayer so grateful for the every Wednesday prayer gathering. 
that happens, that takes place. Because I believe wholeheartedly that when God's people pray, look at me, the enemy runs away. I know that's true. I've seen it happen in my own life. And so I love that. But sometimes we come into our prayer life with this mentality of defeat. Like, God, if you can, I'm asking you to do this. Like, God, I know you got a lot on your plate, and you got my next-door neighbor who you know what they're doing. I mean, you know, I'm not as bad as they are. And so, God, I know you're taking time with them. And if you've got time, maybe, just maybe, you can help me. Like, we assume that God is not all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good enough to overcome any type of obstacle that we're facing. Communion reminds us that we can approach the throne of God with victory because Jesus has already overcome for us. I don't know about you, but my Bible is kind of a spoiler alert. Like, it shows me what's going to happen in the end. And guess what? Jesus wins. He wins. Uh, I remember um, growing up, so one of my favorite sports is, is uh, soccer, and I, I grew up playing that, uh, played in middle school, a little bit in high school, played in college as well, um, and I, I just, you know, I love, I love soccer. Um, I remember back in middle school, we had this team that we were playing against, and oh, I don't like that team at all. I'm still thinking about them right now. Anyways, <laughs> I'm just confessing, God, forgive me, um, but... We knew, like, I, I, it's that team, like, maybe some of you guys, like, you know, like, that team where you know, like, you're going to lose, like, they, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, and I remember telling my, my you know, my, my teammates, I'm like, guys, there's no way, like, I don't even know why we're playing this, we just throw the towel in, like, we're not going to win, it's over, you know, like, why are we even here in the first place, and I remember my coach telling me, he says, if you come into the game with that type of mentality, you've already lost the battle. If you think to yourself that you can't win, then of course you're not going to win. And I think so many of us struggle with that same reality that we have already been given victory. It's not about the obstacle and how big it is. It's about how big our God is and he can do anything. Ephesians 3.20 that says he can do anything immeasurably more, infinitely more than you can ask, think, or imagine. That's who our God is. So we can approach the throne of grace with the mentality of victory. Communion prepared Jesus. But it also prepares us. It prepares us to fight with hope, with joy, with peace. So Jesus took communion to prepare. But what about us? Number two, we take communion to remember. We take communion to remember. We see this in 24 and 25 when, when he begins to read about the different uh, uh, elements of communion, the bread and, and, the, and the juice. Probably wine back then, okay? Can I say that here? Make trouble? All right. Right? Probably that good wine. It wasn't the box wine either. It was good, right? So anyways, um, so he's getting ready to, to give them the elements. And he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, remembering what I've done for you. I heard someone say this at one point. Listen, while the world drinks to forget, Christians drink to remember. Isn't that powerful? So good. Isn't that powerful? While the world drinks to forget the pain, the emotion, the struggle, everything around them to kind of numb themselves from all of the struggles that they're facing and that their family and friends are facing, we as followers of Christ, we take communion to remind ourselves that we can have victory because Jesus defeated death for us. It allows us to continue to push forward. It's a mindset change. It reminds us to continue to keep going. During Jesus' days on earth, he was telling his disciples, listen, to look forward to what he was going to do for them on the cross. He's saying, some of you guys, yeah, you're, you are. I'm just being, you're going to, you know, some of you disciples, you're going to be killed. Some of you are going to have a hard life for my name's sake. But look forward at what I'm going to do because not even death can defeat me. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's humanity's greatest fear. 
Yesterday, I did a, I, I did a funeral for a family in our church, and it was just a, an emotional and a, and, a, and a tough and a difficult moment. But you see, the person that went to be with Jesus is with Jesus. And so as Christians, we grieve, yes, but our grief is mingled in with hope. We don't grieve the way that the world does. And so Jesus is reminding them to look forward at what he was going to do. What about us? We, as followers of Christ in the here and now, we look forward by looking back, back at everything that Jesus did, back at the cross, back at the body that was broken for us, back at the blood that was shed for us. And when we look back, we can look forward. Sometimes we get stuck, though, in this kind of rut of, I like to call behavior modification, right? Like if I behave better, then I'll earn favor with God. I grew up in a type of Christianity where you had to dress a certain way, act a certain way, look a certain way, listen to certain types of music and not listen to this type of music and go to this place and not go to that place. You know, and that's just a laundry list of ways in which you can earn God's favor. And the more of a better person you were, the more of a right standing with God you had. And what that did is it turned a lot of people away from the church, right? Because they began to look at Christianity as a way to have to do things in order to earn God's favor rather than looking at Christianity as a way of God doing everything for us and our responsibility is to trust in his finished work rather than our work, right? It burns people out. That understanding of, of, of Christianity, this rut of behavior modification, and what happens is if we try our hardest to continue to perform, to earn, I call it performancism, if we continue to earn God's favor by performing, we'll forget everything that has already been done for us through Jesus on the cross that we're supposed to just trust him and allow that to be enough for us. I call it gospel amnesia, right? Like we forget that we've already been cleansed from our sin. We forget the substitutionary atonement that's been made known to us through Jesus on the cross. The fact that when he said it is finished, it in fact is finished. Past, present, and future. The sin that you've committed, that you're going to commit. Before you put your head on your pillow tonight, Jesus already paid for. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. Jesus is telling the disciples, man, this is how you grow, to love me and to know me more. Not behaving better, listen, not behaving better, but believing better. Believing that the work is done. And your responsibility is to trust in that. You see, failure to obey God arises out of a forgotten attitude of what God has already done for us through Jesus. When we forget everything that God has done for us, I think, in fact, that's when we fall into sin. That's when we mess up, when we forget like, we, we need to allow the gospel to, to, cent, to be the center of everything that we do. Center Christ in everything that we think about and everything that we know about. A.W. Tozer, a theologian, says that what you know about God is the most defining thing about you. What you think, if you think that God is just some cosmic being hovering over the universe that doesn't have any care in the world for us, he's just some supernatural force, then we're not going to care about our next door neighbor. But if we believe that God, in fact, through Jesus, gave his life up for us on the cross while we were yet sinners in Romans chapter 5, then we're going to care about our next door neighbor. Then we're not going to care, then we're not going to give in to the sinful inclinations of our flesh because we're going to look at Jesus and say, that's far better. Everything that he did for me is far better than the temporary pleasure that I can get from whatever it is. Jesus is far more valuable. Jesus is far more better. And Jesus is greater. That's the gospel. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing to Christians who are dealing with persecution. In fact, you know, persecution at its core. He's writing to Christians that are under this Roman emperor by the name of Nero. If you look into church history, and Nero was a, just a horrible ruler. 
In fact, there's one, uh, one historian that says, Nero, at one point, burned the whole city of Rome down and blamed it on the Christians so that he could begin to persecute. You read about Colosseums, den, lion's dens, and all of that. That was, that was Nero throwing Christians in there as a masquerade to show everybody what happens if you follow Yahweh or Jesus rather than Caesar. They believed that Caesar was Lord. And you see, whenever Paul writes, he says Jesus is Lord because that is who Lord is, who the Lord is. He's writing to these Christians that are facing persecution. But when you first look at this text, you're like, man, this is just one of those passages. You ever read those passages that like, oh, man, I'm just a horrible person? Like it's like this laundry list of ways in which you should obey, different characteristics that uh, define you as a follower of Jesus. Peter does that. But listen, listen, I, I want to change our mindset. Look what he says. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, okay, Goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. Like, I've already failed. Like, it's, it's done. You know, it's, I'm, I'm, it's, it's self-control with endurance. I, I try, but, you know, endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For, listen, if you possess these qualities, Peter goes on to say, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, listen, if you want to... You want to continue to live your life as a follower of Jesus, then you need to have these characteristics. They define who you are. And yes, these are good characteristics. Godliness, brotherly affection, love, generosity, care and concern for the well-being of other people because that's the care and concern Jesus has for us. But when you look at that at first glance, you're like, man, I am a terrible person. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to measure up to those standards. And what happens is we begin to what deconstruct our faith. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with that because I'm not good enough. But look at what Peter says in verse 9. The person who lacks in these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sin. Peter is saying, listen, listen, if you want to grow in these characteristics, then you need to remember Believe better. Don't behave better. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember that you've already been forgiven. Remember the cross. Remember everything that Christ did to accomplish victory for you. And when you remember what Jesus did for you, you will continue to go forward by faith, believing that God is good and he loves you and he's for you, not against you. Listen, ongoing failure in our growth is a direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. And all I'm trying to say is this. Listen, church, if we forget what God has done for us in the past, we can't look forward to what he'll do for us in the future. Stop reminding yourselves of everything that you've done wrong. You already know, and everybody else already knows. Like, you don't change a person by constantly hitting them on the, hammer of, uh, on the, on the head with the hammer of the law. We, we, we know our badness. Hopefully, we know how broken we are. We know how messed up we are. The law exposes, right? The law exposes our bad behavior, but grace is what wins hearts. It's the grace of God that changes a person from the inside out. When they experience that grace and that love and that acceptance, regardless of what they've done, that's what changes them to begin to pursue Jesus and love God and love people. That's what changes our hearts. I remember the birth of our first child, Rome. And man, I, I feel bad for all the, all the firstborn kids in here. I was the third child. But I feel bad for all the firstborn because like, it's kind of like the experiment child, right? Like mom and dad have no idea what they're doing. Three kids later, I still have no idea what I'm doing. I'm trying. I need to start, stop trying to start trusting. But anyways, um, but let me preach to myself. But I remember when Rome was, was born. And uh, that, that night, it was, it was crazy, okay? So um, I think, what was it, like midnight, 1 o'clock, Justine wakes up and she's like, 
and my water broke. And I'm like, that's okay. That's completely fine. I'm going to go get you another water bottle. It's all good. We all make mistakes. She's like, no, 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 no. No, no. You don't understand. My water broke. And she said that like, I think, 15 times for me to wake up. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. The baby's coming. So she's like, all right, let's go. Let's get ready. We got to get everything. In fact, we already had everything packed, but I was acting like we didn't have anything packed. I was going crazy, right? She's like, all right, we got to get the bag. We got to get in the car. We got to do this. We got we to gotta do that. And I'm like, okay, get my jacket, put my jacket on. We got our bag. We're getting ready to go to the hospital. We get in the car. Justine looks at me. I look at her, and we're both like, we forgot the keys. We don't know where the keys are. So I'm like, okay. I run back in the house. And remember I told you earlier that I'm very extra. I'm running around the house. I'm flipping the couch over. I'm throwing the TV on the ground for no reason. And I'm stepping on it. I don't even know why I'm stepping on the TV. But I'm just doing that because it's there. And I'm, I'm like, what is going on? Where's the keys? I don't know. The baby's about to be born in the car. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what to do. What's going to happen? God help us. I put my hands in my pocket because I got nervous. And when I get nervous, I put my hands in my pocket. And then I started feeling my keys. Like my keys were with me the whole time. I already had my keys. I was searching all over the house for something I already had. I already had what I was looking for. Listen, when we're trying to fight off the sin struggles of life, First John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need to be reminded of everything that we already have in Christ. And when we remind ourselves of that, then we're able to overcome the sin struggles of life. Be reminded. Remember. Remember the cross. Remember what Jesus did. Remember that you've been cleansed and forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future. Listen, I was so focused on so much, and rightly so, right, on everything that was going on around me and trying to make sure we had everything else that I forgot that I already had my keys with me. Maybe we've forgotten. Like we've gone past the gospel. There are some of those people in the church that say, I want to go I want, to, I want to know more. I want to know more theology. Like, I, want to, I don't want the shallow anymore. Like, bro, if you just start believing the Bible on an everyday basis, then you could probably go deeper into the gospel on your own, right? Like, I just want to, I want to know more. But you see, I think the problem is we go past the gospel of Christ when this is something that we should rehearse every single day in our lives, with our families, with our children, when we're at the park. Deuteronomy says, wherever you are, reflect on these characteristics of what Christ did for you. And when you remember what Jesus did then and only then, will you be able to overcome. So we take communion to remember. Peter's saying, stop trying your hardest to do things for God and trust in everything that he's done for you. In fact, back to the old, what, what about the Old Testament, right? Because people tell me, like, well, sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I see a lot of law, a lot of legalism. Like, I feel like the God in the Old Testament is completely different than the God of the New Testament. Like, they're two different people, and I, you know, I remind them, well, you know, you need to understand and realize that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we see in the New Testament through Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was in the middle. Jesus will be at the end. That's who Jesus is in. All of Scripture points to the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and everything that he accomplished for us. But in Exodus 20, you read about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is another, it's a laundry list of, of laws and regulations that was instituted by God for the nation of Israel to abide by so that they can live the better life. And it actually wasn't just 10. It was about 620, 600 and something different commandments. God put these in place. He said, listen, if you want to continue to live in communion with me, this is what you need to abide by. But like I said earlier, the law wasn't put in place to show us that we need to obey it perfectly. The law as a schoolmaster was put in place to show us that Jesus is the only one that obeyed it perfectly. And our responsibility is to trust in his obedience for us on the cross. Yeah. 
So in, in, in Exodus 20, he gives them this rule of thumb. Don't do this, don't do that, don't say this, don't say that. Don't cross this person's border, don't, you know, whatever it is. Like, don't wear this certain type of clothing. You get into the kind of minutia of it, you'll see, man, there's some crazy commandments going on. But there's a purpose and a reason behind all of it, because all of the scriptures have purpose and meaning. Yes, even the genealogies that you don't like to read about. It all has meaning. It all has purpose. But listen, in Exodus 20, before God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, before he even gives them the law, the rules, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And then he goes on, as a result of that, here are the Ten Commandments. Listen, he doesn't give them the Ten Commandments first. He doesn't say, okay, it's time for you to obey, time for you to do more, time for you to pull up your, 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 yourselves up by your own bootstraps, time to be a better person and clean yourself up so that you can have a relationship with me. No, before giving them a law, he says, be reminded and remember that I'm the God that freed you from oppression. I'm the God that has given you grace. I'm the God that has given you mercy. I'm the God that has given you love. And as a result of that, now it's time to obey. That's what changes us. It's a mindset change, realizing everything that Christ did for us on the cross. And when we do, we'll begin to want to obey. Our behavior modification occurs when we put our faith in the truth that despite, listen, our constant rebellion and persistent failure, we have a God who delights in us. Yes, he delights in you. Whatever you've done, he delights in you. And I think I need to speak that as a prophetic word over somebody in this room. Jesus delights in you. Jesus is enough for you. Trust in that. Believe that by faith, with confidence, that he loves you. So remember. Remember who you once were. But also remember who you are now because of Jesus. Paul does that beautifully in Ephesians 2. I just want to read this over you. He says, and you were dead. We were dead before Christ. Our corpse was rotting. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the earth. This is our story before Christ. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, with all of our desires and, and, and inclinations, carried out the fleshly thoughts of our hearts. We were children of wrath, but then verse 4 changes the script. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. Paul said, remind yourself that at one point you were dead, but because of Christ you're alive. At one point you were children of wrath, but now because of Jesus you are sons and daughters of the Most High God. At one point you were poor, but now because of Jesus you're rich. At one point you were sinners, but now you're saints because of Jesus. Let that translate into your everyday life and allow that to consume you when you feel like giving in and giving up. As we close out, he, he, he reminds us that, that communion is, is this new covenant, right? It's this new covenant. It leads us to see that Jesus is instituting this greater covenant. You see, what I want you to understand is that the power of communion is not in the pieces of bread, but in the person and work of Jesus. It's a reflection and a reminder of everything that he's done for us. See, back in the old covenant that was established, you had to go into a specific infrastructure. And I, I love churches because it reminds us that we don't need a specific place, right? Can we praise God for that, to worship him? We could do it anywhere in any place. And I am past time. Wow. Sorry, guys. I'm closing up right now. We don't need to go to a certain place, but we need to trust in the perfect one who became a place for us. In John 1.1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
dwelt among us. That word dwelt, talking about Jesus, saying Jesus tabernacled among us. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us that we don't need to go to a specific place to worship God or to have an intimate relationship with him, but trust in the one who made himself uh, flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus now is the tabernacle. When we come into relationship with him, we can access the presence of God anytime we want. It reminds me of the gym. If you like to go to the gym, people in January like to go to the gym, but not in February, <laughs> right? New year, new me, kind of. Um, when, I, when you walk into the gym, in order to access the equipment in the gym, you got to buy a membership. You don't buy a membership and pay monthly for it. You can't access the equipment. You can't utilize anything. If you want to work at a gym, you got to look a certain way on the outside, right? you got to look a certain way, act a certain way, have a specific type of knowledge about uh, a supplement and about nutrition, all of these different things. If you do, then you'll be able. And I started to think about our life as a follower of Christ. Listen, you don't need to look a certain way on the outside in order to access the presence of God on the inside. You need to trust in what Christ has done for you. You don't need a citizenship. You don't need a membership. You don't need a specific card. Jesus is the citizenship that you need in order to live in community with him. And as we focus in on communion this morning, I want to remind you of that truth. Now let's approach it a little differently today. Rather than thinking about what we need to do, focus in on what's already been done. Focus in on what's already been done. Let's stand as we respond. We've got some ways in which you at walk respond. There's different ways. You can come to the front and respond by praying. You can sing and respond. You should have, as you walked in, received the communion cup. If you didn't, let me invite you even now to go back to the table and grab one. And I want communion to look differently for us today. Not just something we do every first of the month, but a reminder of everything that Christ has already done for us. And so rather than saying, I have to, think about how you get to come to communion because of the blood that was shed on your behalf, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And allow that to translate into how you live your life. Amen. I love you, Walk Church. I'm grateful for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for your mercy. You took our rags and you gave us riches. You exchanged our distance with your nearness. You pursued us rather than look in the opposite direction like the priest and the Levite with the Good Samaritan. You actually approached us in our shame, in our sin, in our mess, and you gave us what we could not give to ourselves. And so because of that, God, I'm grateful. So may we emphasize and focus on that as we take communion. In Jesus' name.